From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Like when you're in Rome and you're at a great restaurant, it just, you know, it's not brain surgery. It's just, oh my God, this is the thing that I want to eat when I'm here. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And you just heard from one of today's guests, Gail Peary. Now, Gail is one half of the team behind the famed San Francisco restaurant Foreign Cinema, along with her partner, John Clark. And the two-decade-old institution in San Francisco's Mission District is now the setting for Gail and John's latest cookbook, The Foreign Cinema Cookbook, Recipes and Stories Under the Stars. And we've got a great show for you today. We're talking with Gail and John about everything from how they met, to what influences their style of cooking, to which cookbook authors have inspired them over time. And for a special installment of our In the Kitchen series, we're headed into the kitchen at Foreign Cinema to cook alongside Gail and John as they prep a few perfect brunch recipes from the book that you can create at home. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Gail Peary and John Clark joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Gail. Hi, John. Welcome to Salt and Spine. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. Thanks for having us. Of course. So we're here to talk about the two of you, your restaurant, and of course, we're a show on cookbooks. So your most recent cookbook, the Foreign Cinema Cookbook. But let's start with some context, maybe for listeners who might not live in San Francisco Bay Area, might not have visited and may not know what foreign cinema is. So can you tell us a little bit what the concept of the restaurant foreign cinema is. It's a beautiful outdoor, indoor restaurant, huge soaring ceilings. On Mission. On Mission Street. We are famous and take our name from the fact that we project a movie on a distant wall in the outdoor dining area. And we use a 35 millimeter film and a projector uh, several nights a week. Uh, the projector was uh, rescued from a going out of business theater in the city. The one right next door. The one uh-huh. right next door. The new mission. Okay. And we are uh, an ever-changing menu. So we write the menu every day, mm-hmm. and we feature lots of fun San Francisco items and a full oyster bar and a daily changing menu. And this marks 20 years this year of foreign cinema. Oh the my God, yes. So congratulations. How could that be? It's a, it, I don't think anybody ever thought 20 years when it was all started. It just sort of it happened. Sure. So let's talk about the two of you. You met um, working in restaurants in San Francisco. Is that right? You met at Vicolo? That's Pizza? right. Yeah. We met there. We did. And then you sort of continued to work together at other restaurants. You moved on to Zuni Cafe and you both worked there. Yeah. So we were there a little over seven years during some great years. Yeah. And your whole life has sort of just been in kitchens then. How, how has that been working in kitchens as, you know, business partners, as co-chefs and, you know, as partners in life too? I'm it, sure it's been frightening. <laughs> yeah. Frightening and helpful and, uh, you know, super duper on some levels and then down low on other levels. But, um, <clears throat> for the most part, it's kind of magical, but you know, we, we've done a lot of things. We do have a particular life in kitchens among other lives as well. So, but I would say most of the time we've been, um, doing a lot of different kinds of things around the world after, after Zuni, we kind of took off and did a lot of work around the world in kitchens. We yeah. Did, consulting, right? We did consulting. Uh huh. Restaurant consulting. Yeah. Our first gig was in Hong Kong 
uh, doing a restaurant. And we were there off and on with him for almost a year. And then another restaurant in Hong Kong. And then it just went from there. And what impact did those travels, like working in kitchens and restaurants around the globe, have on you as you're sort of like, this is pre-foreign cinema, right? So you're still sort of cooking in restaurant kitchens at the time, hadn't really taken on the big restaurant project of your own yet. That's right. And I think when we left Zuni and we had this opportunity to go travel and bring Western food and a sensibility to a faraway land... It seemed very exciting at the time because think back to 1993, you know, there's no Gordon Ramsay on TV. There's no kitchen nightmares. There's none of that. It's very um, just on the down low. So we thought, oh, we don't need to open a restaurant. We just need to help people with their restaurants. Like, why should we have a restaurant? Let's just make other restaurants better. So that was kind of our mantra for about seven years. Let's just make other people's restaurants better. We know we can help them. Yeah. And I, and one of the things I think that helped prep us for foreign cinema was in all those seven years and I don't know, countless hundred restaurants or more that we were in, it was also a learning process for us. And I think we learned many things. Sometimes uh, it's amazing what can be done with almost nothing. Sure. And I don't mean just food. I mean like no equipment. <laughs> you, you, you end up, you know, leaving a bubble of reality and then you, you end up making the impossible possible. And I think a lot of um, cooks could use that because they're insulated in, in these perfected environments. But when you have to uh, hit the ground running with very little resources and you kind of just need to invent yourself and you, you need to invent the success for the person who's hired you, you just, you just come up with the solution. And that's, we thrive on finding solutions. We really do. It's part of the fun. Yeah. I think that's so interesting. That's a philosophy that is clear if you're reading the cookbook too. You, you write in the cookbook that you came up through the school of rugged individualism and the hard knocks of willful independence. I think that's oh, yeah. a, a through line for sure. Well, Completely. When we were kids cooking, um, before Zuni or at, uh, Vicolo or many other restaurants I worked at, everybody around us was cooking for love or to make a living, but also they were artists. They were, they did many other things, writers, they had other lives. And it was very individualistic, sort of a group of creative people who were all working together. You right? could also say misfits. Uh-huh. Absolutely. I feel like I'm a misfit, um, even today. And, uh, but it, it, San Francisco at that time, you, you could make a living being a line cook, but you were also either going to school or you had another job or you were writing or you were painting or you were involved in some kind of bohemian kind of situation. Sure. And that was like nitty gritty. That was the down low, really interesting part of the city. The possibilities were endless. Yeah. And you've talked about that balance. I know for you personally, you're a painter. So you have, you talked about at the time you were sort of using painting to fuel your cooking and cooking to support your painting and sort of that balance. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. It was very symbiotic and logical and it, it made perfect sense to me because a lot of philosophies rang true of the same, of, of both practices. Sure. So it was an epiphany. It was like, wow, you right. can bring this painterly style to food. That was an epiphany. Yeah. So it was very gratifying. It wasn't like I was taking off from painting. I was actually filling in some voids, you know, in the painting world with food. It was very interesting. I mean, I, I think, I think a lot of people feel this particular thing that I'm saying. And both of you came, what drew both of you to cooking? Neither of you went to culinary school. Utility. Yeah, needed uh, a job. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was, uh, had just graduated school and, um, 
I guess a friend of one of my roommates was working at Vicolo and said, oh, they have great jobs down there. And I, I went down. I, I had actually been working in a law firm beforehand and other temp work, and it was horrifying. Sure. And I was attempting to do what I studied in college, which was uh, broadcasting, video, broadcasting, okay. video, mm-hmm. television production. And I found that to be a tremendous bore, at least in San Francisco. There was no creative excitement in that industry at all. Yeah. So it meant I had to move back to L.A., and I think I was just basically too lazy to do that. So I ended up cooking to pay the rent. And it was like that for a few years. I, it took a few years for me to think that cooking was really something that was more than just uh, a means to an end. And, you know, we were meeting, and I think it was when we got to Zuni, when I got to Zuni, after working with Judy about six months, that I realized that, uh, hey, this is this person's very interesting. You know, there's something more here. What she's doing and the way she's getting us to learn meant that when I went home, instead of reading an architecture book or something, I would then read a cookbook. Mm. So it had broadened my perspective a lot. Because John's very mechanical. He has an understanding of mechanics. And, you know, food has mechanics. And it's also a major art form. But I think it was a, a, a time of total awakening where you could use all the tools that you had before. You weren't leaving something in a closet. You were actually utilizing all those other things that you have learned over the years. Right. Let's talk about the restaurant. So you took it over. So you did not conceive of foreign cinema. You took it over very early on in its life, sort of at the time yes. of the dot-com implosion, right? Is yeah. That yeah. Correct? So it opened in 99 okay. to great uh, fanfare and excitement. But if you remember that year, you're really young, but it, it, it quickly, you know, unfurled itself into kind of a quagmire of chaos. I mean, the whole area had this instant money and then it was gone and there was energy. And, you know, if you don't, if you're not on strong ground with amazing structure, things can be pretty wobbly. And so we walked into a wobbly restaurant. Now we're talking 20 years later. What did you do to sort of make foreign cinema work. And and for folks who don't know, I mean, we we alluded to this a little bit, right, with the um, projections of movies, but it's sort of the concept of a double feature, right? Like playing on food and film and how those work together. You're right. And I think we didn't want the aesthetic of the restaurant or the confusion of the restaurant to get a hold of things. And it kind of already was. Like people would be, when we got there, they were pissed that there was people talking during the film and the restaurant had listed the films in theater listings and there was no address. And, you know, people knew of the restaurant, but they didn't really understand it. And when they got to the restaurant, they might've had a charming time based on the concept, but there just was a lot of bugs. And we wanted the restaurant to be a good, good restaurant that happened to be central in the sense that it showed film and it was evocative of of a, of a faraway place. Like when you're in Rome and you're at a great restaurant, it just, you know, it's not brain surgery. It's just, oh my God, this is the thing that I want to eat when I'm here. And yeah. I, I, so we ended up writing a menu that, that are our favorite things to eat. And we were hoping people would follow suit. We don't come from, from the Zuni background. You don't come with a huge knowledge or a bunch of toolkit with spices. In 1993, when we left Zuni, the, the only spice we used was garlic and fresh herbs. I mean, okay. there was no spices. We remember getting rid of all of them. Um, upon Judy's arrival. But well, we use saffron. We use saffron. But when we came to foreign cinema, we're, you know, we had already been traveling the world. We'd known, 
we were learning some stuff, but we were doing some original, simpler food, and we just needed to go and start thinking about it in a bigger way. And the idea of going and buying our spices from the Indian market meant that we were there every week going through the market, picking up the load of spices, and then you're like, well, what's this? And what's this? And how about this? And then we started making things, and that's kind of the birthed of the whole spice trail experience that we took at that period. Right. Now, you've worked at... You both worked at Zuni, um, Chez Panisse, Gail, you worked at Chez Panisse. Um, so you've worked at these restaurants that sort of are symbolic of California cuisine and California cooking. And I think foreign cinema is now like in that list as well. Do you consider foreign cinema to be like a, a style of California cooking or is it more like, would you define it as more of a globally influenced restaurant? How do you sort of like fit yourselves into the legacy of California cooking today? Well, I would say it's California cooking because we use regional ingredients. Trial. I mean, <laughs> okay. we, we use regional ingredients and yeah. that really is the, the, the epitome of California cooking. You're not sure. looking very far for certain things. Uh, you, you use what's here, but I would say it's California cooking with a global sensibility in that we do need things to pop flavor wise and we do need the palate to be surprised and we do need to compete with the environment. So maybe they're subtle on some levels like, Oh, what the hell am I eating in this brown dot? What did they add? You know, so we do tend to make surprises in the food, but we don't, I don't think we think of ourselves as a, a global restaurant. Okay. Do you think that's right, John? I don't know. I, I don't know. Influences. Do we think of ourselves yeah. as global? We do a lot of crazy influences and sometimes we make something very authentic sort of Japanese tasting or, we come up with something that's kind of Thai tasting that's very authentic. I mean, we don't want to do, you know, Thai food like a Thai restaurant would do sure. it. That's not our mission. But we do end up with things that are very pure tasting. So I don't think of us as a global restaurant. And certainly in our youth, the idea of eclectic, being a restaurant being eclectic was like a it was a horrible thing if your restaurant was or fusion was called <laughs> right. eclectic yeah. or that, fusion. That was a pejorative. Really yeah. pejorative. Yeah. But today, hey, come on, that was literally 30 years ago. Today, people look for that. They they want to go, and uh, I don't think a Roman restaurant would do so good here with just pasta and a pizza in it. So people need to come to a place and sort of experience a lot of different things. Right. And we do like the idea that, although I don't say it's a global, I never say it's global. I always say it's spice trade. It's a spice route restaurant. Yeah. Think of that as you will, with a Mediterranean flair. Okay. Foreign cinema is obviously nestled in the Mission District, so which we alluded to. But let's talk a little bit about the mission. So you write in the book that, um, the, or that the terroir of the restaurant really is the Mission District. Tell us a little bit about how you think foreign cinema fits into the Mission District. Uh, between 21st and 22nd. <laughs> Physically. <laughs> on right the west there. side of the street. <laughs> yeah. Metaphysically, I think it's more about a sort of enchanted magical space that really couldn't exist in any other neighborhood in San Francisco because okay. the footprint is rather unique in that it takes you back to a fairy tale courtyard and there is a sweeping room that used to be a you know department store 99 cent store and mm -hmm. then there is an adjacent building that has now become a you know our gallery modernism west that was once byron's shoes Okay. And that's curated by Martin Mueller in San Francisco. And we think that, you know, being in the mission, um, is definitely a part of history in San Francisco in that, you know, the mission is always redefining itself, mm -hmm. you know, decade after decade. It is about redefinition. And 20 years ago, this restaurant got built and it was imagined as this great space. And it could have easily been compartmentalized into a lot of little spaces, but, you know, the founding 
John Varnado, who saw it, got his way. And I think at the time, the city was interested in creating a new, interesting, evocative energy center. And so they were going to do a film school. It was going to be a um, center, a community place to come together and get food and then watch a film. And then next door where the gallery is, they were going to do like a film school. So the city embraced it. Okay. You know, and I miss that in in the mission a little bit because while we are all heartbroken about people leaving neighborhoods and we are too and we're terribly worried and about just the working class being able to stay here i'm working class san franciscan so i am very worried about it but i also think that we can overcorrect in the opposite way where you know we're not allowing enough stuff to happen whereas this completely happened because it was the mission and because we were looking at closed theaters and so at the time, it was yeah. revolutionary to reinvigorate the act of the Grand Theater because we had five shuttered huge theaters. All in the mission. All in the mission, yeah. all within a four block radius, all closed, wow. all shut down. And, and a lot of them are now reopened and repurposed, which mm-hmm. is lovely. And a few are still shut down. So I think we're in this funny phase of just, are we going to, what are we going to do? And I think it should be thoughtful, but I don't think it should be shut down. So our restaurant is completely a result of being in a magical place when the city embraced a community center, you know, that was going to be inclusive. One thing I didn't realize until I was reading through your cookbook is how prevalent theaters were in the Mission District. You noted the five shuttered theaters to the tune of like 10,000 theater seats. Yeah. Yeah gone in the span of however many years and how even the shopping on the district uh uh-huh it was a a renowned bay area shopping district called the miracle mile yeah and there's photographs in the book i mean there would be thousands of people on the streets just like you couldn't even imagine today right you know taking advantage of dollar day thursdays and just they they would come here on a trolley and shop and go back home i mean it was it was a hub a center a hub And so I think we are blessed with the idea that it can still be a hub. It's just right now it seems, you know, we're it's all in under redefinition. But our building does uh, use the recycled theater floor from across the street, and like John had mentioned, the thirty-five millimeter camera from the new Mission Theater, and you know, trying to reinvigorate you know community. And what better way than food and film? We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Gail Peary and John Clark. But now we're headed into the kitchen, and this week it's a special trip into the kitchens at Foreign Cinema, where Gail and John are prepping balsamic fried eggs with roasted radicchio and a Persian Bloody Mary, the perfect brunch combo. So we are with Brian in the kitchen today working on one of our signature dishes that has become kind of an iconic, can't-take-it-off-the-menu item, and it's the balsamic fried farm eggs. And how we're going to start that is we're going to roast some radicchio. Chicories will work. Escarole will work. We're going to pop those in the oven. And those only need to roast at 400 for about two and a half minutes. And what happens is they become super crackly crunchy, which is our favorite kind of texture. So we're going to begin by uh, getting our pan hot to fry a few eggs. And how we will finish the dish is with a balsamic vinegar glaze that will go over the the radicchio that's a little crunchy, the suave fried eggs, and then finish it off with balsamic vinegar. And so I've got a nonstick six-inch Teflon pan, also known as an omelet pan, and it's on medium-high heat. 
And I'm waiting for it to get pretty hot. And I'm adding a really nice um, olive oil. And we're going to get the oil hot, and that'll take a couple of minutes. Oil, making sure it's uh, not smoking, but is at a great temperature to really fry those eggs in a flash. I like to do a light sprinkling of kosher salt over the eggs. And we are moving fast over medium-high heat. I'm going to low it, lower it to medium. And I'm watching my eggs sizzle. The edges are getting super golden and bronzed. And just a few seconds, we're going to flip those eggs. All right, here we go. We're going to flip. Oh, they have the most beautifully bronzed pot marks on the eggs that are just very beautiful. So that's only going to cook for another 30 seconds. And while we're uh, finishing those eggs, we're going to pull out the radicchio. There's a great sizzling effect happening with the radicchio. It has completely wilted. It's a little crisp on the edges. And we're going to be ready to um, put that radicchio on a plate. And it really did only take two minutes. Exactly right. So we're just arranging the radicchio on the base of the plate. Our eggs are going to slide right on top. And then we, we finish the dish by um, pouring that bubbly balsamic right over the hot eggs. And then you're left with this great counterpoint of acid richness and a little sweet bitter from the radicchio. I love that it's like a really sort of elegant brunch dish, but is also really humble you know you you have eggs you probably have some radicchio some crunchy radicchio um that you can just toss in the oven and it comes together in in no time comes together in no time and if you have nothing in your fridge and you needed a dinner this would make a brilliant dinner all you need is a few leaves of anything that you could roast like even a simple lettuce a little gem and a little balsamic vinegar or even red wine vinegar and then a couple of eggs so it's really one of those things that you could make for yourself an elevated dinner with nothing in the pantry. Um, and so we're going to pair these eggs with a drink. That's right, John? A drink, not just any drink, but the foreign cinema Bloody Mary. Perfect. And it's the Persian-style Bloody Mary, is that right? What makes a Persian? We've spiced it up with things like sumac. We've got a little tick of uh, curry in there, Some uh, a little bit of a turmeric, and it just gets a really great sort of a Persian-esque flavor, or we thought of it as Persian-esque. Great. Let's see how it's done. So what we start with, some tomato juice going into a container. And we're going to flavor this up. We're going to go ahead and give it a shot of lemon. And shot of lime. There we go. We're heading out now. We're going to add some little spices to it. And we've got a little bit of our sumac here. And so when we're just making a couple... The recipe really calls for about a tablespoon of sumac, but we're just going to give it a little bit less. So we got a little sumac in there. we got a little curry here. A little turmeric. got a pinch of salt someplace here. going to add just a little salt. So you've got your tomato juice. You've got your herbs and spices in it. going to give it a good shake. You can strain it if you think it's too gritty or not. And then we're going to pour this into a cup with a couple of these beautiful ice cubes at fabulous restaurants like ours have. 
there we go. Here comes our juice mix. And now the piece de resistance, what you cannot, what you must have is vodka. And right now we're using Boulevardier vodka for this drink. Uh, you can use any vodka you want. There we go. And so what you would normally do is about two ounces of vodka per person. But hell, go for three if you want. So there's our drink. We tend to dust the rim with a little bit of spice mix. We're going to garnish it with um, a little lime wedge and some house pickles. And then that's it. That's our Persian Bloody Mary. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much. We're here at the Foreign Cinema Kitchen, uh, where we've made fried eggs with roasted radicchio and balsamic glaze and the Persian Bloody Mary. Thanks, Gail. Thanks, John. Good. Thank you. You can find links for both of these recipes on saltandspine.com. And now back to our conversation with Gail Peary and John Clark. So this is actually your third book together, I believe. Your first cookbook was in 2000 called Country Egg, City Egg. Tell us a little bit about that book and where the concept for that book came from. Oh, we, dear. We left. <laughs> we had been working at Zuni Cafe, of course, um, and both of us, each one of us at different times, had been lunch chef, brunch chef at Zuni. Okay. And I think part of the lunch, the brunch ideas were uh, pioneered at Zuni um, in 1988. Um, okay. So, and we left... Uh, uh, Zuni and we had all these ideas that we had on a brunch and we wanted to do a cookbook about eggs. You know, we did this and, and at that time, I mean, it's, it's, if you, if you know or anything, as in 1995, eggs were put in jail, literally. <laughs> you know, they were considered, uh, poisonous. They were considered filled with salmonella. All high these cholesterol. Things, high cholesterol. Everything about an egg was just the worst thing you could eat. Yeah. And they really weren't, and, and there was a big ad campaign of eggs in a jail, and the door was open. That was about 98 or 99, and they were finally letting eggs out of jail. And, you know... This is an actual ad campaign? Oh, yeah. Okay. The, yeah. And and the um, basically, the studies and the science came back that, wait a minute, salmonella really isn't such a big problem with eggs, and that, hey, wait a minute, the cholesterol really isn't the kind of cholesterol that gets in your blood veins, and they're a great source of protein. So as soon as this thing started to shift... I mean, back in 1995, 96, you had to coddle an egg to make IOLI. Well, you know, um, we, 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 when we left Zuni, we wrote a, we wrote a, uh, a little proposal and it ended up on a very important editor's desk and she, she sat on it for five years. And then, you know, she's like, it's not the time. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. But she loved the title. She loved the concept. And Ann Bramson at Artisan gave us the green light in like mid year 99. Okay, we're doing this. Yeah. And we're like, what? Okay. Okay, <laughs> now we're doing it. Two months to write it in. So, uh, that was pretty fun. But I remember we'd just call every six months and she'd say, no, it's not the time. And then all of a sudden it was green light and then the book got written and it was fun and it was very exciting to have yeah. a, this thing come to life. Sure. Oh, yeah. It was great. And then a few years later we were at Zuni and I'm sorry, we were at Ford Cinema and we were, <laughs> um, approached by, uh, William Sonoma. Mm-hmm. They wanted a bride and groom book. Yeah. They, they had did. done a bride and groom book. They wanted it rewritten. And they loved the, the purity of writing that Country Egg City Egg had. They thought, oh, this is what we need for young people starting out their married lives who sure. want to know how to cook. And so because of that Country Egg City Egg book that they loved, they said, you should write this book. So we did that. And that was like the 2006? 2005. I, I don't really know. Okay. Five. Sometime around then. So I believe it's still in, p- in print. And then now we're here, 2019, Foreign Cinema Cookbook. When did you decide 
we should do a cookbook for this restaurant that we've been running for this, nearly this two decades. This book took about 10 years to write. Okay. so And, and it took 10 years because an agent said, oh, you have to write the foreign cinema book. And so we signed up with her. Her name's Carol Bidnick. But in those days, 10 years ago, it was impossible to write a proposal because we were so busy running the restaurant. It just, yeah. it just took a long time because a proposal these days is a hundred pages. It's a business plan. It's how it's going to be organized, what's going to be in there and who had the time to write it. And I think finally. I, I think we dragged our feet for a lot of reasons. It just was something that was not going to happen. And I'm glad we did wait because we really had the, the perspective to add to it. Whereas I think 10 years prior, it wouldn't have been as rich a book because. You know, the more battles you fight and win, you know, you can parlay that into, you know, a little sagacious writing sometimes. So we got that out of the book, I think. I don't know what exactly. Oh, I know. In 2015, my dad died. And so this, this book, cookbook proposal, it just was something that we just weren't going to get done. And when he passed away, because he worked at the restaurant as a uh, host a couple nights a week, for me, it was really a moment to say, use his absence as a way to just do this thing. And uh, that was 2015. Okay. So we wrote the proposal and then sold it. Uh, so the proposal got written in 2015, 2016. We sold the book. And then during 2017, we wrote it. It took about a year and a half of recipe development. And the good thing about this book is it is 100% John and Gail. It is our it's, cooking. It yeah. is our... Tested in our home, but also tested after we perfect a recipe or something. We'd send it off to people who were not cooks. Sure. And ask them to test the recipes. And, and it was a lot of work went into this book. A lot of work to make sure that what you get is something that actually works in a home. Right. Not in a restaurant. Right. And, and. It'll work in a restaurant too, but. <laughs> yeah. The idea was to really inspire people at home and not to create a really complex restaurant tome that doesn't get used. But, you know, so we wanted it to be a beloved book, a book that might have a great story that would have a great story to reference because foreign cinema had a lot of lore and mystique right. and infamy. And we wanted to just clear the deck and provide things that could really inspire somebody at home. Right. You mentioned your father as being sort of an impetus in his passing for getting the book published. And I just want to pull that out because I think um, one thing that is so unique about your book is uh, people might look at it and think it's a restaurant book, but your restaurant has always really been centered in family too, right? Your oldest child is the same age roughly as foreign cinema. Like your, your children have been around, your family have really been a part of this. And even the fact that you're testing these recipes in your home kitchen, I yes. think really speaks to that too. Oh, yes. Yeah. We, we do uh, think it's a, uh, it is a family restaurant, multi-generational restaurant of people coming together for a good time. And uh, by the way, oh, there's international visitors too. So it really feels like you're coming home. Yeah. I feel. Now you mentioned when you were line cooks starting out in San Francisco, you'd go home and read cookbooks. Um, who are some of the cookbook authors that have influenced you or been, you know, particularly valuable in your career, either in your career or as you sort of thought about putting this book together? Well, back in those days, it was MFK Fisher, uh -huh. Elizabeth David. I mean, there was the first Alice Waters. There's, say it, Richard Olney. Um, those are sort of the foundations back in those days. Yeah. Um, for us. I think we were in love with Europe and, you know, food that was, 
you know, 100 years old or more, you know, things that were steeped in antiquity that still resonated today at that time. I mean, we we have 250 or 300 cookbooks that we look at, but I think um, it was the idea of just understanding a sense of place. Mm-hmm. And and so those writers, you know, Paula Wolford, of course, and Anne Willen and well, lots of writers who just would take you to a place so that you would get a sense of that. And then you, you'd have a broader picture because we weren't yeah. always able to travel. They were, they were writing, um, in essay form. So it wasn't, it wasn't about a, a recipe. It was about a sense of the food. You know, Richard only could talk a page about how best to cook a mushroom, but there's no bloody recipe there. Sure. You know, and, um, I think, f- for us, also, that's part of what it was. I mean, yes, we had books that had recipes, but for the most part, it was reading all about the whole experience of eating. And a sense of place. Yeah, and a sense of place. And there was those Marcel Pagnol books, you know, which really were all about uh, Provence and whatnot. And there's also Mary Taylor Semetti, a great book, A Tuscan Year. I don't think there's a recipe in that book. Yeah, so we, we really just wanted to just visit but as many places food. as right. possible. It's about food. It's about the love of food. It's about, it's about food as an art, as a, not an art, but as a way of living, um, and a very personal thing. How did your cookbook process change from your egg book 19 years ago to this book today? This book was supposed to be a reflection of the experience and not just um, an aggrandizement of two chefs. This isn't just solely, specifically, it's certainly about our food, but it's about the experience of the restaurant. Sure. And it's a trip. And when you get there, there's an introduction that goes all the way through the experience. And that's how it was conceived. And Gail did a really great job uh, really working that in there. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about influences of yours, and you used the phrase books that sort of take you to a place and have a sense of place. And I feel like this is a restaurant cookbook, but it really has that sense of place, too. You understand the restaurant, the neighborhood, the mission of the restaurant, all through sort of experiencing this cookbook. Do you think of it as a restaurant book today? Is it, is that still how you would like bill it in your mind? It's an impression of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. It's an impression of foreign cinema. I think it really is a sense of ourselves and a sense of place. And we wanted to take it down. Like, just like we are not people who went to culinary school. We're not television celebrities, but we are humans. Yeah. And here, here's how we got here because it's an impossible story, really, how we got here. I would have never guessed that this is where I would be today. I mean, really going to school and going to college. I mean, so we just wanted it to be humble and very generous in spirit. So I feel like we got a book that is generous in spirit. We didn't hold back and almost every trick we have is in there. And we just tried to make it super easy to accept and read and nothing too clandestine or complex, just really a sense of ourselves. Hey, this could happen to you. (laughs) We didn't go to cooking school. This just kind of happened. Yeah. Following a series of steps that made you feel happy and blissful. We really made choices that made us feel good, but I would have never guessed this is where I'd be. Yeah. Awesome. I just want other people to think that way too. Right. So we always end with a quick little game. So I thought we would really lean into the double feature concept. <laughs> uh oh. And I'm going to ask you to make a, a five course meal for us. And I'm going to give you, so we've got a five course 
blank menu here, right? We're going to start with a soup, appetizer, salad, a main, and a dessert. And we're not going to debate the merits of the films that I've picked. I've picked some popular and well-known films from the course of history, and I'll give you eight here. So maybe you can work together to sort of come up with a five-course menu with these five movies, and we'll we'll take a look at them and what you might serve to um, accompany that film. So we've got you know, well-known movies like Wizard of Oz, um, Titanic to Casablanca, um, and, and each, and each, a few each, others. each film is a, is a course. Each film is a course and each film has a pairing. So we'll go kind of quickly. You can think about it for a minute and, and this would be a, a long. Can you play the Jeopardy music? A long. Da, 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 <laughs> I can do my best. <laughs> I think you've got it right there. And I realized this would be a, an, an all day affair to screen five movies uh, with five courses, but we're gonna, we're gonna pretend. So what sticks out for your soup film? What is a, what is a soup film? Um, Titanic ends in death, so that should be a dessert. So Titanic is the dessert. Okay, we'll, yeah, come, we'll come back to that. Titanic's the dessert. Okay. I think Rocky's the opening because that's the ultimate in um, success. I mean, doesn't he win? You know, he's got the, uh, he's got the long shot and Rocky wins. Isn't that how you want to start? Okay, and what do you serve as we're watching Rocky? A barf bag. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> what do you serve when you're watching? What's our soup course? You know, I think this is a velouté soup. Okay. Oh, really? You think Rocky's a velouté? <laughs> yeah, I think it's a it's a vegetable velouté. I think you're nuts. That that mimics those egg drinks that he was drinking, right, with spinach oh, and stuff. Okay. Oh, so okay. maybe it would be a smooth spinach velouté okay. for the soup for Rocky. All right. And then we move on to our appetizer course. What film are we screening? I think it's uh, I think it's uh, Wizard of Oz because that's an adventure. Don't that's you right. See that? It's All an right. adventure. Adventure, Wizard of Oz, and what are we eating? Something gay and frivolous. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think maybe um, Carpaccio, oysters and caviar. Oh, oysters and caviar. Great. Perfect. Great. Um, how about our salad? Let's do Godfather. Okay. And Godfather. because there's a vegetable garden, there's so much death in there. In Godfather, yeah, but you know there is a he does grow vegetables. He's got a garden in there. Yeah, carrots and little head lettuces. Okay, and, and really good olive oil. It's really beans? really good red wine vinaigrette and maybe some okay. butter beans. Okay, and some good Reggiano. Uh huh. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Um, and what are we watching for our main? Casablanca. Casablanca. And what let's, are we eating? Let's do some Moroccan stuffed quail. Sure. Okay. Yeah. It's a voluptuous movie. And then we're ending on on a dessert. Did we say Titanic? Or well, we, we said Titanic, but yeah, let's let's stick with our Titanic. Okay. Well, what about we'll just, It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. Then what's the dessert? A big voluptuous cake. Oh yeah, layer cake. Okay. Who doesn't love a layer cake? Okay. Yeah, a big layer cake with a wonderful life. So. When you eat a layer cake, it's a wonderful life. Yeah, we did find some, didn't we? Lots of symbology. Um, And I I can't wait to see this menu at Foreign Cinema someday. This like 14 (laughs) hour. I'm calling you, you and your wife. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll be there. That's right. All right. Well, thanks so much, Gail. Thank you, John. It's so great to have you. Thank Thank you you for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. 
And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes for both the balsamic fried eggs with roasted radicchio and the Persian Bloody Mary. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song is created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com